The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Saturday, June 15th. Saver Collaboration Beer, featuring Brewery Amagang, Brooklyn Brewery, and Saranac Brewery. Um, I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm, I'm a New York bar owner. Jimmy's number 43. I'm the co-founder of a group called The Good Beer Seal. If you're in town and you want to know where to go to get a small, independently owned beer bar with great selections, go to goodbeerseal.com. Currently, there's 41 in all five boroughs, uh, places like Jimmy's number 43, Blind Tiger, that you may have heard of. I'm also the host of Beer Sessions Radio. It's a national podcast that's uh, every Tuesday at 5 o'clock on the Heritage Radio Network. And we have a, gr- a lot of great guests, including Phil. And every summer, we go up to... Uh, Cooperstown for the Belgian Comes to Cooperstown a special festival at Omegang and we have a, a great time with these guys um, I'll make the announcement Saver is brought to you by the Brewers Association the national trade organization representing small and independently craft brewers please silence your cell phones for the duration of the salon thank you Phil um, <laughs> we encourage you to wait until you are prompted by the presenters to sample the beer we already broke that we decided that we would get you guys drinking first because this is the special Saver collaboration beer that was made by Saranac, Omegang, and Brooklyn Brewery. Uh, we thank the supporters of Saver, Manhattan Beer Distributors, along with DeChico Family Markets, who is the supporter of this room. This salon is being recorded by craftbeerradio.com and will be available to listen on craftbeer.com after the event. I'd like to introduce the speakers tonight for this session, which is the Saver Collaboration Beer Seminar. Uh, Garrett Oliver will join us, hopefully at some point. He's the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery and the editor of the Oxford Companion to Beer. Phil Leinhart is the brewmaster of Brewery Omegang. He's a longtime brewer, over 24 years in the industry, and since January 2008 at Omegang, where he's uh, introduced great innovations and an increase in production. And Rich Michael, a product development manager for for the FX Matt Brewers, also the Saranac label. And between Saranac, Omegang, and Brooklyn, uh, they made the collaboration beer. I'll let them take it away. They're, they're going to tell you a little story about how, what it takes to make a collaboration beer, you know, how difficult it is, and, and also how, how inspiring it was for them. So, guys, Phil and, and Rich, everybody, give them, give them a round of applause. Welcome. How you doing, guys? Um, first up, we'll talk real quickly. I'll give you a little bit of history of our brewery, and Phil will do the same. Then we'll talk about the process a little bit. Um, our brewery's been uh, in Utica for 125 years. We're selling our, celebrating our 125th anniversary this year. It's a family-owned brewery. Uh, we've been known over the years for doing uh, many, many different lager beers. Our founder was a German immigrant. And uh, over the years, we've done all sorts of great beers. Uh, you know, Our flagship today is our Saranac Pale Ale. Uh, we do all sorts of varieties, and we do try and work with some local ingredients when we can. And... Uh, I'll let Phil talk about Omgang briefly, and we'll talk about the beer. Yeah, welcome, everybody. Um, I've been in Omegang since January 2007. That brewery was started in uh, 1997 uh, by Don Feinberg and Wendy Littlefield. They owned, they still own a Belgian beer importing company called Van Bergen de Wolf. There were several Belgian breweries that were partners in, in that brewery, the starting of it, including Duval. In 2003, Duval became the, the sole owners. Um, and that's what I, previous to Omen Gang, I was with uh, Anheuser-Busch in Newark, New Jersey, and then actually started my career here, uh, not too far from here, in Manhattan Brewing Company back in 1986, one of the first brew pubs in the country. I don't know. If, and Garrett actually worked for them subsequently. Uh, but I think we'll go into the beer a little bit. Um, we just, uh, we've been bugging the BA for, 
a number of years to do a, a, some sort of a collaboration beer. It's kind of a tradition now. Uh, and then we thought this year with Saver being in New York City, uh, that'd be great to get some New York breweries together. Uh, and so we have a close relationship with Rich and the guys up at FX Matt. And, you know, they, they do a lot of contract brewing for uh, Brooklyn. And so we decided to get together and just got on a conference phone and uh, started about talking ingredients that we could use. Uh, one of the things we wanted to focus on being New York brewers is trying to use New York ingredients. Uh, we talked about the history of each brewery. Um, you know, Phil's company does a lot of bottle-conditioned beers in Belgian styles. Um, guys at Brooklyn do all sorts of stuff, a lot of bottle-conditioned beers, large bottles, and we also uh, do some contract brewing for them. So we're pretty familiar with what they do. Uh, we're also known for lagers. So we tried to take some aspects from each brewery, um, hist historically what we do, and, and roll that into this beer. So we actually made this as a, a lager. Uh, this is a white beer that's actually a lager. It's kind of unique. And uh, we tried to use New York ingredients. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of New York ingredients available at this time. Historically, there were quite a few hops grown in New York, but that's changed over the years. Uh, but we were able to find some New York wheat, and uh, we were able to source some New York barley. And that barley was malted out of state, unfortunately. It was malted in Massachusetts uh, by a small company called Valley Malt. Um, up until very recently, there's been no malting facilities in New York, but we found it, it was really important for us to use a New York source product. Um, and... Uh, Phil's company also supplied some other ingredients as well that were New York sourced. Yeah, we got we sent uh, the Brooklyn Brewery some orange peel and also uh, lemon verbena from Wellington Herbs in Schoharie, New York. Um, and Garrett got some honey from, uh, from someplace in, in New York. I'm not sure where. Uh, well, I have to apologize for being late. I did not realize... Saver actually hasn't started yet, so... <laughs> I didn't realize that this salon started before Saver started because I haven't even let people in the door yet. So I, I apologize for being late because I thought I was 15 minutes early. Yeah, we were, uh, there was a typo on the, on the 7 o'clock. We yeah, we were downstairs so, talking it over trying to figure out. Well, I guess out. you can perceive typos if you actually read things, you know, which, uh, you know, which is what I failed to do. So, uh, so yes, I'm late. I'm sure that you've uh, uh, covered things pretty well. The, uh, the honey is from Tremblay Farms uh, in upstate New York. They're near the Finger Lakes. Uh, we've been getting all of our honey from them for years. You know, we use mostly wildflower. Uh, it goes into a number of our beers. And, uh, you know, we made a beer that was 30% honey, you know, a few years ago called Buzz Bomb. That was a, kind of a braggot. And uh, in any event, you know, uh, some of the less charitable people around the brewery have taken to calling me Honey Man, which I do not appreciate. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> because, because I do like it uh, as an ingredient. Um, but in any event, as I'm sure these guys told you, you know, the, uh, it is lively, <laughs> uh, especially if it's not quite uh, uh, cold yet. Um, but we want it to be. You know, it's kind of uh, broadly based on uh, sort of a, a Belgian Grand Cru uh, idea. You know, so at about 8.5%, uh, 40% uh, malted wheat, uh, mal rather unmalted wheat uh, from Richardson Farms, uh, rather North, Kevin Richardson at North Country Farms. Uh, we'd used his wheat before, and in fact, we have a, a beer that'll be coming out in the green market that'll be, you know, focused also on New York State ingredients. So it was something that we all want to do, focusing on, on those ingredients. Normally, that type of beer we would do you know, in, a, uh, in a Belgian fashion. Uh, I'm sure that Phil normally would as well, uh, but with Saranac coming out of more of a lager tradition, 
you know, we wanted to go with a lager fermentation here, and, and frankly, it was something that I hadn't done before uh, with this type of uh, uh, with this type of beer. So, you know, I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, there's one or two observations I might have uh, that I think are kind of interesting about it. You know, we kind of picked the coriander level based on the many fermentations we had done with coriander before, and we make blanche uh, and things like that. The coriander character, while I find it pleasant, is higher than we would have thought, you know, and I think that that is because not only do you not have the masking esters that you would get uh, from a Belgian fermentation, but on top of that, you don't have the same vigorousness of fermentation that probably during uh, a warmer, more rapid fermentation actually throws those volatiles off um, and you lose a lot of it, not only there, but stuck to the walls of the fermenter and everything else, whereas the lager fermentation is obviously a lot calmer. Um, and so, you know, next time I do something in this direction, it'll be an interesting thing to look at, uh, that your, you know, your losses, if you like, or your, you know, volatization of those sort of compounds are definitely a lot higher uh, in, a, in a warm, rapid fermentation. Um, but, you know, we want it to be something, uh, something new, uh, that none of us had done before. If any of us had done it before, it wouldn't be new. So there you go. So uh, has everybody tried the beer? No, uh, Garrett, 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 Garrett. That's your beer. Oh, that's my beer. Well, that's been sitting for 20 minutes. Yeah. That's yeah, per- perfect time. It was fresh if you were on time. <laughs> but as, as Garrett says, that, that, you know, that's a good observation. In a bottom fermentation, typically you, will ha- you have a cleaner fermentation, so you're tasting... That's why in the greatest lagers and bottom fermented beers, you're tasting the ingredients. You're tasting, the lo- you're tasting some of the yeast character, but mostly the, the malts and the hops. Whereas with like a Belgian strain and a lot of top fermenting strains, they produce higher levels of esters and so forth. So you're getting more fermentation character. So this strain and the temperature which was fermented lets more of the ingredients come through, such as the coriander and so forth. Yes, it's a good point. I, you know, I often you know, t- tell people that uh, the difference between, uh, you know, a, people often ask what the difference is between, I think everybody can probably, yeah. you can hear me, right? The recording. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, I forgot the recording. Sorry. <laughs> Someday when I'm awfully low <laughs> and the world is cold, um, I will think of this beer. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, we often tell people that uh, the main difference that uh, beer drinkers want to think about when it comes to what are the differences between lagers and ales, it really does come down to, just as Phil said, um, yes, if you have taken the cages off of the court, yeah, think, think of it like champagne. Do not point it at anybody you don't like. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, once the cage is off, do not walk away. You know, do not point at face. Uh, yeah, we've seen a. Uh, you know, they're 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 calm when they have not been moved recently and everything else. But you know, like champagne, if you take the um, uh, that off, you can go. It's one thing that's interesting, and I don't know whether you guys got into this already, but uh, people think of this type of package as a champagne bottle, or you know, uh, champagne. You know, kind of. Uh, 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 packaging, if you like. So if there's you know, one thing that I really want everybody to remember you know, when they leave here is that this is actually a beer bottle. And this was always a beer bottle, and champagne is in a beer bottle. The whole technique for making champagne was to take a thin 
acidic, undrinkable wine from northern France and make it into something drinkable. And in doing that, they made uh, champagne. And I love great champagne, but champagne is a cocktail. Uh, it is not, technically speaking, just a wine because 99.95% of champagne is sweetened, most of it quite heavily. And the reason for that is that there's not enough fruit character that far north in France to give you uh, uh, something that is drinkable you know, at, uh, uh, without the sugar addition, which is called the dosage. And that's a different sugar addition than they do for the priming. So there's the re-fermentation in the bottle, and then there's removal of the yeast through, you probably know, the uh, riddling and remuage, the whole thing of getting the, the, the yeast down into the neck of the bottle and then expelling it. The interesting thing about that is that the removal of the yeast from the bottle really was never about clearing the beer. The reason for getting the yeast out of the bottle is because they want to sugar it afterwards, and if you still had yeast in the bottle, the bottles would explode. And until about the mid-1860s, 1870s, more than half of champagne shipments were lost explosions. And you actually, you can go see, uh, 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 they actually had kind of suits of armor that the guys who would do the riddling in the cellars would wear because it was entirely possible to, to be killed uh, you know, by one of these things when it was going off like a grenade. Um, you know, you have a, you know, you, you blow up a, a bunch of them and it's glass and suddenly you've got a CSI crime scene. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a, a perilous sort of thing and it kind of gave uh, champagne a little bit of its, uh, uh, its early panache. But, uh, but interestingly, you know, it was really monks who, who brought a lot of uh, this stuff down, you know, through, through history. And of course, you know, they were among the principal people that developed uh, uh, champagne, even if a bit about Dom Perignon is a bit apocryphal. Um, so when people kind of ask, well, it's really cool, you guys have, uh, you know, you're, you're aging beer in oak, just like wine. It's like, actually, we've been aging beer in oak for a thousand years, okay? We, we've had, you know, beer in, you know, uh, uh, re-fermented in the bottle before there was any wine re-fermented in the bottle, you know, and uh, uh, just the fact that people have uh, forgotten um, you know, only in the last 60, 70 years, really, you know, has beer been away from oak and stuff like that. And, this, and if you look at old Budweiser ads from around, you know, 1900, 1910, the bottles look just like this. They, they are, you know, big cork-finished wire cage bottles. Um, so uh, I think we should stop calling this a champagne bottle. <laughs> Drink at your own health risk. <laughs> no, no, this is not going to explode on you. We, uh, we, we, we do uh, run a bunch of tests to make sure that we know how much sugar might eventually be uh, uh, taken up in refermentation. Since we're recording. So why don't you guys go through, each one of you say what you guys contributed to the collaboration beer. And tell us more about the process, because it's very interesting. It's three breweries in three different cities. You know, how did you guys do it? want to start with, with Garrett. Uh, well, I mean, I think we, you know, we started with, uh, with uh, most of it happened in a conference call, um, you know, with uh, the three of us, you know, sitting together and a couple other people listening in and throwing some ideas around. Um, one of the things that drove, I would say, us in the direction of this particular beer uh, was that in New York State, you don't have an awful lot of malt being made, very little, you know, uh, indeed. And in fact, even in the heyday, of uh, breweries in New York City, at least, most of the malt was already coming from the Midwest. 
Um, and you know, back in the year 1900, you would have had 48 breweries in Brooklyn, and they made 10% of all the beer in the country. You know, but it was coming uh, from the West. So one thing that, that does grow well in New York State and is uh, uh, still being grown on a, a larger basis is, is wheat. But of course, there isn't any wheat being malted either. So that kind of drove you know, my thinking anyway in the direction of something that might uh, include a large portion of unmalted wheat. Um, and since we've used a lot before, that was basically the start of the suggestion or the overall underlying thing um, that I came up with and then kind of everybody else took it from there. Yeah, we pretty much wanted to use as much, as many New York State ingredients uh, as we could. Unfortunately, we couldn't get any hops in there. We just didn't have any, but it is something that is coming back up. We're doing some work with Cornell University where we're going to be doing variety trials and so forth. But I think also the the the, the honey was New York State. Uh, we the orange peel we sent wasn't the oranges weren't grown in New York State, but uh, lemon verbena came from Wellington Farm Herb Farm in Schoharie, New York. Uh, and then uh, probably the hardest part for everybody was trying to get time that we could all sit down and talk on the phone at the same time. I mean, I see Phil and Garrett more at these events than I do in person or talk to them on the phone. I mean, it's just uh, we're we're busy making beer. Uh, you know, we wanted to contribute uh, something that's important to us is our history is lager beer brewing, and we figured that was a unique spin on uh, this style. This is traditionally an ale style, and we've got a great history, like I said, for 125 years of making great lager beer. So it's kind of a different spin, and, and the guys were all for it. So it makes something unique for us. Has everybody tried the beer? What do you think? Anybody have any questions about the ingredients process? Did you guys talk about refermentation already? or? Okay, well, um, you know, it's one of the things I think that makes the beer sneaky. I don't think that you would think, you know, off the bat that it was 8.5%, you know, or so. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dangerously smooth, you know, and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, and goes down a bit like a, uh, a wit beer, you know, in some ways. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we tested it a few times, and it comes out at only uh, uh, you know, 16, 17, you know, IBUs. Um, we had, uh, you know, we'd expected maybe one or two, you know, a few IBUs higher. Um, but I think this is actually a perfect balance. Uh, one thing that orange and different types of peels give you often is a, diff- a different kind of bitterness, which uh, gets together with the bitterness from the hops. Um, and so we had kind of have that going on. Not all that much residual sugar. We like to keep these beers uh, nice and dry. I know Phil does too. And, uh, you know, in the Amagang beers, I think it's part of what gives... Uh, a beer like this, nice drinkability. Uh, refermentation is something that we've really, uh, in the last six, seven years, uh, focused on in a big way. Um, you know, we have a facility that we keep at 77 degrees all the time across the street from the brew house, and uh, we can hold about 4,000 cases at a time, uh, uh, you know, in there. So, on average, uh, beers that we're making, you know, refermented, they'll spend uh, two weeks in there and then further a few weeks in cold conditioning. So this beer was filtered and then redosed uh, with a blend of, uh, of, of yeast, including the Matt's yeast and uh, a sprinkling of champagne yeast, which I put in there basically to guarantee the refermentation, uh, since uh, you know we hadn't used uh, the lager yeasts before in refermentation. Um, it's one thing you find when you do refermentation is that, especially if you have one shot at it within a time frame, it had better happen. <laughs> 
and it's a uh, you know th- for those of you who are, who are home brewers, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, thing about doing refermentation in a brewery. It doesn't. It's kind of like the difference between cooking at home and uh, and cooking in a restaurant kitchen. You know, they're vaguely related, but not really. Um, it's a completely different you know different thing. You know, the same way that at home you're probably not going to have a piece of uh, you know, striped bass in a pan with like a, you know, three inches deep of, of uh, boiling butter and scooping it over the top over and over again so the fish cooks evenly throughout, which is what they would do in a restaurant. I don't know anybody who does that at home, you know. And it's, it's, and it's really the same with, uh, uh, with what you're doing, um, you know, in a, uh, uh, in a brewery. I mean, we have advantages over the home brewer and disadvantages. And one of the disadvantages is that we really need things to happen within a certain time frame, you know, because if, for example, you think that the beer will take uh, two weeks to re-ferment and it takes three and a half, the entire brewery will back up. You know, at home, if it takes another week, it takes another week. That may be vaguely disappointing, but, you know, nothing really bad happens to you. Um, and of course, we had this as a you know as as a deadline. So that's the reason for the you know the the blend of yeast. I think that we might have, if we had more time to put it together, we might have gone with just the lager yeast, done a test first to make sure that it worked, you know, and uh, and then take it from there. Guess we can open up some questions. If anybody has questions about the beer, the process, any of our breweries. What? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll repeat the questions for the recording. Just, if, if you have a question, ask the question, and these guys will repeat it, and then they'll record it on the board. So just put your hands up and don't take the question. So we'll get a bottle at the end of the night. Uh, uh, should, should we drink it immediately, or should this was uh, age or time? What are your thoughts on keeping it? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, if you're with somebody, I'd have one. <laughs> I'd have one. I'd have one earlier and one later. And repeat you know, the it's, question. It's a science project. The question is: Would you consume the beer that we give away tonight at the end, uh, uh, right away, or uh, or later? Um, ideally, you know, in a production brewery, we don't have re-fermented beer. Beer should always be fresh, but this beer will develop and will age and will change, uh, hopefully for the positive with time. I mean, we think it's a great beer now, but it's going to change a little bit and. If you have two bottles and you can have one now and have one a month from now or two months from now, it might be a nice experiment. Yeah, I mean, the re-fermentation and the alcohol level will help this to age a little bit. So, but I personally would keep it under a year, and I think it's, it's drinking fine now. A beer like this, a little more delicate, in my opinion, is better fresher. I think what you'll see over time is uh, you know, the bitterness and the sort of body of the beer a little bit more married, a more creamy texture over time. And then after about you know, six months, depending on how you're, how you're keeping it, you'll start to get you know, what's called surly character, you know, which is uh, you know, now on the negative side in brewing, you might refer to that just as autolysis, which is the death of the yeast and the flavors that come from it. Uh, interestingly, in champagne, uh, that is generally required and is part of the style, which is one reason why champagne has to be aged on yeast for three years at a minimum. Um, so that's often described as a hazelnut or toasty kind of character you know, in the best champagnes. Um, it's one of those things that uh, it really depends on what you're looking for. You know, you, and once, yeah, it's very subjective because it's a matter of like, did you want or expect fresh beer right now, or did you want a more aged character? And it's just like wine. Fresh, you know, old wine shouldn't taste like it was just made, and, and neither should uh, fresh wine taste like it's old. And it's the same thing, you know, I think with, uh, with beer. I, I expect to like this, 
you know, a, a lot after a year, and I think that it will gain certain characters. Um, but if you like the brighter, fresher character that it has now, uh, it might be better to drink it now. There's um, literally thousands of flavor-active chemicals in beer from fermentation that will change. Some will fade. Some will increase. Some flavors will develop from yeast changing. I mean, it's a, it's a great science project. Yes. Uh, the question was, where's, where was the beer brewed at? It was brewed at the Brooklyn Brewery. Yeah, we brewed it at, uh, at Brooklyn. Right here, right here, rather than delivering it. Uh, they came down for, uh, for, for, for bottling. You know, we figured that was, uh, you know, well, there was certainly more work to be done. <laughs> now, it's, uh, believe me, like, every one of these bottles, you know, the re-fermented bottles, they're all handled several times by hand. Um, you know, they go into these crates and then, you know, they, uh, uh, you know, they go into, uh, they go into the re-fermentation rooms and then they come back out, get labeled then, and then go into the box. You know, it's one story that is kind of part of the, uh, creation story, if you like, of, um, of what went on with our re-fermentation program. And I don't know if Rich even knows this, but, uh, you know, back in 2006, when we first went to do our first test runs of bottle re-fermented beers, I looked at the re-fermentation crates. They look kind of like milk crates, not all that special. You know, they had dividers in them, but I figured, you know, a plastics company, you'd get something just like that. Well, it turned out that wasn't the case, and we had a timeline uh, where we were expected to have this beer ready for a launch party in March. We were starting in September, uh, uh, et cetera, and it was going to take three months, apparently, to get these special crates from Belgium. And uh, I got in touch with the uh, then uh, head brewer at Amagang, Randy Teal, and, you know, and said, like, dude, I'm in trouble. You know, uh, uh, I don't have these re-fermentation crates that I'm going to need to get this done. And uh, I think it says a lot about what craft brewing is about, that, you know, that he didn't hesitate to just say, uh, you know, we actually do some re-fermenting down in caves, and this time of year, we're not doing it. So we have 300 crates, and uh, we'll ship them to you tomorrow. And when you're done with them, just send them back. And, like, you know, that's that. Boom. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if he hadn't done that for us, we would have had a much, much harder time bringing out our first, you know, re-fermented beer. And I think that it really uh, uh, speaks to, you know, what craft brewing is all about. Um, as I think Sam Colagioni said once, I think when something goes wrong at uh, at Pepsi, they don't call Coke up. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. I I don't. I I would say I never. I don't quote Sam much. I never quote Sam, but that's really good. And it's uh and it's and it's totally true. I think that is what makes craft beer. You know what it is. And if you uh, you know, people talk about uh, you know what's craft beer and what's not craft beer. Well, I think you do know it when you see it. Uh, and uh, and that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's a small industry in a lot of ways. I've known Garrett for years and uh, Rich for a couple of years now, and it's uh, a lot of people have worked together, and as Garrett says, we, we try to help each other out when we can. Uh, so any more questions? Yes. No, this is, this, the question is, did we get to do any test brews or pilot batches? No, this was like, we got to hit the road. The rubber hit the road. But we're experienced enough brewers. Garrett knows his brew house, the yields, efficiencies. We're experienced enough brewers. We don't, a beer like this, we don't have to go through endless test brews. We know pretty much how it's going to come out. And, I mean, uh, the process-wise, we understand. I mean, the flavors kind of developed based on what we picked for ingredients. So that was kind of part of the art of it, but the, the science we do every day. So it's... 
Yeah, I would say, you know, we just generally don't don't do test brews per se. I mean, the only time that we'll do them is when we're using ingredients with which we're completely unfamiliar, like never used it before, and it's almost impossible to get a level, if you like, on, you know, say you want to know you're using fresh mint ginger. You know, how much fresh mint ginger does it take for how many days to give you what level of character? You know, and you may be brewing for 20-something years, but if you've never used that ingredient before, you really have no idea. You know, and uh, and you will get you will get surprises. And uh, it's one thing brewers, generally speaking, don't like it surprises. Um, you know, in something that you actually have to uh, get done. I mean, we we have a whole range of beers where we like surprises. You know, but th- that's yeah. There's a nice yeah, good surprises. We we hope for good surprises, but uh, we didn't want one here. Uh, the only surprise I would say that we got, as I said earlier here, or at least there was a surprise to me, is. Uh, you know that the uh, that the coriander character is as far forward as it is, but I think it's a really nice you know coriander character. I don't mind that, and I'd be fascinated if there was some way, and I'm sure you could do it through you know gas chromat- uh, uh, chromatography or something like that. Figure out whether or not it's that f- you know much further forward because there are usually other things from a Belgian fermentation going on around it that it's in balance with, or is there actually more of it? as I was saying, because of the... Uh, uh, and from a scientific point of view, that I, I just find the question interesting. Whether or not I'll manage to find out is a different question. Um, we recently did install a pilot brewery to play with special ingredients, and we do have a beer downstairs made with New York State uh, white grape juice, and we do have a gas chromatograph, and we are playing with a lot of these questions. I've got the coolest job here, I think. I get to play with uh, new beers, new flavors, and new process. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting. I was in Italy last week. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> well, I don't have a gas from that. Phil, since you guys, you know, you're here at State Virgin, why don't you guys each say, in relation to the collaboration, the beers that you guys are pouring here and the appearance that you have, and, you know, how you guys interact? Okay, yeah, we're pouring a Fleur de Hublon, which is a beer we did do quite a bit of uh, development on. It uh, uses a good portion of Bravo hops, including whole leaf Bravo in the kettle. Uh, it's a summer seasonal, and that's being paired with a salmon, I believe. And then uh, we're pr- uh, also pouring three philosophers, our quadruple style, being paired with uh, lamb, I believe. Uh, we have our white IPA, which has been out in the market for about a year and a half. It took us about a year to develop the beer in the lab. And uh, we also have a, um, a beer that's brewed with New York State white wine grapes. It's about 13% of the, the sugar source. Uh, we used a white wine grape called Traminette, which developed at Cornell a few years ago, and we used a Belgian yeast in that, which is a little bit different for us. Um, the white IPA is paired with a sepia, and the, um, the vintner saison is paired with a tapioca and salmon. And we're pouring uh, Sriracha Ace, which is a, a saison uh, featuring the Sriracha Ace hop, uh, you know, which is originally from Japan, but... Uh, you know, was first bred by the Sapporo Brewery in 1978, but didn't actually make it into any commercial market until it was uh, put on the market by Gamash Farms in 2008. Um, and we were one of the early breweries to use it, you know, in 2009, and we made a special out of it. And every few months, we make a draft special that's around for a number of weeks. Well, this is the one that just wouldn't go away, because uh, every time it started to go away, we became very sad. Um, 
you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we would find some excuse to bring it back in some different form. And then like our German importer would ask for some, we'd make some for them and some for us just to drink, you know, and uh, this kept happening over and over again. And after a while, you kind of start to get a clue and you're like, maybe we have to have this beer all the time. Um, so although, you know, we do love our customers and we, you know, we often pretend that uh, we're trying to make, you know, beers for you guys, the fact of the matter is, it's not about you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually all about us. We're very self-centered. Uh, we, make, we make the beers that we want to drink and then we hope that you like them. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, I mean, that's also a big part of what craft beer, you know, is. It's the one thing that uh, differentiates it from you know, from the mass market brewers. I don't think they're making the beers that they want to make and hope that you like them. I think they're just, you know, uh, uh, it's a different process. Garrett, tell us about some of your favorite beer and food Ah, well, today, I mean, we've got, uh, uh, I haven't had it today. I had it yesterday. It was awesome. We have a, uh, a wonderful shrimp ceviche uh, paired up with the Sriracha Ace. And Sriracha, the Sriracha Ace hop has this very kind of lemongrass dill sort of character to it. It's quite unusual. Uh, the beer is super dry. You know, classical saison style, but very much uh, with that hop variety far forward. And then uh, with uh, Black Ops, which is our uh, our imperial stout, aged for six months in Woodford Reserve bourbon barrels, and then re-fermented in the bottle with champagne yeast. Um, that was originally a beer that we made, you know, just for ourselves. And then, you know, uh, the next year in 2007, we started to uh, to bring it out on a small level commercially. So it's not that easy to find. We only make a couple of thousand cases a year. And I know that sounds like some beer, but, you know, it turns out that when you're in 26 states or whatever we're in, 27 states, uh, a couple of thousand cases get spread pretty thin. And a lot of shops only get six bottles or something like that. Um, you know, so uh, not an easy beer to find, but it's one that we really love. Um, I think it's a really nice balance between the chocolate and coffee characters, you know, and what the barrel gives you. And... Um, so that beer would have been brewed like last March. So it's a little over a year old now. It's uh, mellowed uh, uh, nicely for a beer at about 11%. And uh, we've paired it up uh, with a uh, kind of a chicken, a chocolate chicken liver mousse, which is about 10,000 times better than it sounds. You know, you're like, okay, chocolate, chicken, liver, you're losing me here, you know. Um, it's spectacularly delicious, and it's got this kind of uh, um, chocolate, you know, kind of candy shell on the outside. It's one of the more extraordinary, you know, pairings I've, uh, I've had in a while. Uh, to answer your, your question, which I'm actually going to dodge to some extent, um, you know, it's one of those things where I, I find... Uh, uh, you know, beer pairings, uh, I mean, there are ones that stick in my head, but they're so situational, you know, as well. Um, I've had a couple of situations where obviously I've, you know, written books about beer and, uh, and food pairing, so it's something that's very much on my brain. But every once in a while, uh, uh, I'm usually the guy, you know, in control of that process because chef gives me a menu and then I do the pairings. And I never really realized that it is in doing the pairings where all the power actually is until somebody took the power away from me. <laughs> and so we did, a, we did, a, we did a, a dinner with Eleven Madison Park, um, who are really a, a leading restaurant. They have three Michelin stars uh, in the San Pellegrino list, which you know, uh, chefs definitely follow. Uh, they are now up to number five in the world um, with Noma at the top. It was at one time El Bulli. 
you know, for, uh, for some years. Um, they have 140 beers on the list, um, and it's a great list. You know, we make some stuff for them, but we, they also carry some of our regular beers. And so when we did a, a dinner with them, they were like, okay, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we'll work with you on the menu, but we want to be involved, you know, in the pairings as well. And one of the ones they came up with was uh, a beer that we make, which has uh, a big Britannomyces character, which we call Wild One. Um, and they paired it up with a, uh, a wash rind cheese called Grayson. Now, the wash rind cheeses are the stinky cheeses. They're the really smelly types. Um, this one is based on Telegio. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to use your imagination, the kind of horsey funk of, uh, of Britannomyces, the wild yeast, together with the kind of horsey barnyardy funk of, of the cheese. And the two things were just like, da-da, you know, and um, that is now one of my go-to pairings, you know, and uh, so some things definitely happen, you know, through serendipity, you find something that you never thought was going to work. Um, and you may discover it by accident, and then it becomes like a go-to thing. So, you mean as a? So the question is, if we'd bring this collaboration to market as a collaboration between us. I don't know. That's a tough question. Uh, I think uh, we're pretty full c at capacity with what we're brewing right now. Um, might be difficult to do. And, it, and then it loses its specialness, too. I mean, part of it's... That's one thing we've learned as we go along is, like, part of the, you know, the lure of limited-release beers is they're limited-release. And if they become common, then they're not so special anymore. But, uh, you know, it's not ruling it out by any means. But I just want to say that my favorite beer and food pairing... This may seem not so elegant, but the best beer dinner I ever did was in Chicago. It was a bacon and beer f beer dinner. That's cheating. It, 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 was, it was like just we had there were 10 different beers. I was one of several participating breweries, and then all these like gourmet uh, bacons from the surrounding farms. And it was, they had a, uh, a full-time EMT just in case anybody dropped dead of a <laughs> massive heart attack. But uh, it was just really one of the best uh, beer and food pairings I I've ever had. Uh, to Garrett's point about situation, we did a chocolate orange porter at 9% a few years ago in a 22-ounce bottle. And with your feet up in front of the fireplace, you could pair that with anything, and it's just perfect. <laughs> the cold winter night, it's just nice to sit and have a nice, strong, hearty beer like that. Uh, my favorite with that, we have a local farmer that makes a cheese, and they do a washed rind with that beer. And it's, uh, it's pretty unique. And uh, if you can talk them into getting a couple rounds of cheese when you drop off beer, it goes pretty well. I mean, from my part, I think it would be fun to, you know, to circle back around to the idea of, you know, uh, you know, us and maybe more breweries in New York State, you know, actually doing something together. It might not be this particular thing. I think we all like to keep things creative and, and keep moving. Um, the uh, Sriracha Ace was one of the very, very few beers, in fact, the only one of the Brewmaster Reserve beers of all the ones over the years that ever came back. And it wasn't that people didn't ask for them. They asked for them all the time. And, you know, but my, my answer is I have other things that I, that I want to do, and so we're going to keep moving. Um, this one just didn't, you know, didn't let go for us as, you know, as much as, uh, as anything. So I think, for, you know, for me, I think it would be fun. I mean, we... Uh, 
It's the one thing that I think we can claim to have uh, invented, you know, in, uh, in brewing is collaborations. We were the first American brewers to do it, um, or the first brewers anywhere to ask, apparently, uh, any time in the last couple hundred years, anybody to, to make beers uh, uh, with us. And we started in the mid-90s and, uh, and never stopped. Um, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's always been a big part, you know, of, uh, of our DNA. Um, you know, and we have collaborative projects you know, now uh, uh, in a few other countries. We're opening a, a brewery in Stockholm uh, at, the, uh, at the end of this year, beginning of next year. Um, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, fun stuff going through there. It might be fun sometime to have everybody come over there and, you know, brew something in Stockholm and, uh, you know, make some, make, some New York, uh, make some New York beer in Stockholm. I mean, uh, you know, hey, you know, it's, uh, it's a nice place to be. <laughs> Uh, the question is if there's a significant market for collaboration beers. Yeah, I think so. Like Garrett says, he's done a few collaborations that I assume were successes uh, in the marketplace. We've done some collaborations with our Belgian uh, partners uh, that went over very well. Uh, we've done a few, particularly for events, and it's kind of special for us. Uh, we've done some events uh, like GABF. We do a collaboration with the guys at Denver Beer Company. They're downstairs last year, and we're planning this year's collaboration over some beers later tonight. So we've done some collaborations with the guys at Otter Creek for Vermont Brewers Festival. So for us, it's more of an event thing. I mean, it's... Uh, no, it's just something we've done with uh, people that we enjoy in the industry and people we like working with. Um, that's kind of how we've... Our, our take on it. And, and, for, and for us, you know, we have a few of them that, uh, you know, that have been brought back a number of times by, you know, the other... the brewery on the other side. Uh, you know, two beers by, you know, that we did with J.W. Lee's you know, they continued to brew Brooklyn Best Bitter for a number of years after we did that collaboration. We brewed a beer called Manchester Star, which is one of their old recipes uh, in New York, and they since brought that back out. Uh, the Hopfenweisse, which we did with uh, Schneider in 2007, we did two different versions. One was Brooklyner Schneider Hopfenweisse, and the other one was Schneider Brooklyner Hopfenweisse. Um, and the difference was that uh, it was a big, a big vice beer, you know, but it went, brewed at an IPA, uh, sort of intensity and big hop character, you know, at a time when there was no white IPA, uh, you know, sort of white IPA or wheat IPA style. Um, and so uh, I chose the hops to go into Schneider's beer, and then Hans-Peter Drexler from Schneider chose the hops to go into the beer made in Brooklyn. Um, we brought it back as a bottled special once, but it has become part of the permanent lineup, you know, of the Schneider Brewery. And, you know, I'm proud of that because we were the first guest brewer they had in 400 years uh so we didn't burn the place down and they actually kept the uh you know they, they they kept the beer the most fun one you know so far at least recently uh in november i was down in uh, brazil and i had this beer when i was i had this idea when i was in florida a couple of years ago at the saint somewhere brewery which makes some really cool saisons and bob sylvester the brewer there said we want to make stuff that has a kind of local terroir of florida and I'm looking around, it's like, man, you guys got a lot of sugarcane. You know, wouldn't it be great to make a beer from sugarcane? But they didn't end up doing it. So, you know, we got, uh, uh, when these brewers that we knew down there called Vals in Belo Horizonte got in touch, I'm like, I got an idea. But, you know, you guys got to be ready to get crazy because I want to get us out there at 6 o'clock in the morning with a bunch of machetes, and we're going to cut down 700 kilos of sugarcane, 
you know, and wait for it. You need a crusher at the brewery because we're going to crush the sugar cane straight into the kettle. You know, which we did. You know, we got this green 22% uh, percent sugar uh, uh, liquid called garapa, which is, uh, you know, uh, which has this really funky, earthy flavor. You know, and if you've ever had some of the really great cachaças, you get this flavor. And we made a beer out of it called Saison de Caipira, which in, in Brazilian slang, you know, the, you may know the drink, the caipirinha, you know, which, has, uh, which is sugar, cachaça, and crushed lime. Well, the caipira is sort of like somewhere between redneck and country bumpkin. Uh, uh, and the caipirinha is the drink of the farmer country bumpkin guy. But the thing is that like redneck, there are some people who might say smile when you say that because they're actually kind of proud of having whatever that background is or hillbilly. Uh, or something like that, where normally people might not be using it as a compliment. So, uh, you know, the, their, their proudness was, yes, we are Caipira, and smile when you say that. And we, you know, went down there and made this uh, Saison with uh, this big Shuriking character. So, you know, it'd be fun, you know, to explore with people what is the character of New York. Yeah, thanks again for everybody coming. We'll be at our tables if you have any questions. I'm going to try our beers. So. Thanks for coming, guys. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com. <laughs>